This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Hello, and welcome to SuperAge. My name is David Harry Stewart. I'm the founder of Ageist. At SuperAge, we help you live better and become the best version of yourself. And who doesn't want a SuperAge? Welcome to episode 70 of the SuperAge podcast. This is going to be dropping on February the 16th, 2022. Hope everyone had a wonderful Valentine's Day. Always good to appreciate the loved ones in our lives. They're so important to us. This week, I have been, actually the last two weeks, I've been trying something new with my diet, um, I, something a lot more plant-based, um, um, almost vegan. And so that's required some adjustment. And of course, being who I am, I track. Um, so I have, a, uh, I have a sleep tracker to see like how it's affecting my sleep. Um, short answer is I sleep better and longer. Um, I've just... Uh, got myself a continuous glucose monitor, which is something I've wanted for the longest time because I, I tend to be hypoglycemic. And I was concerned that, you know, eating a very, a fully plant-based diet essentially might spike my blood sugar. So that's been really interesting. And more on that as I get to understand that device a little better. And of course, I'm going to be using Inside Tracker to check all my biomarkers to see how this is affecting them. So we'll be doing that in a couple of weeks. This week on the show, we have Dr. Scott Schur, who is an expert on something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And the shorthand for that is HBOT. And HBOT has come on my radar recently. Um, a number of people I know have used HBOT in one capacity or another with seemingly uh, amazing results. I've seen results out of the Aviv Clinic in Tel Aviv that are almost magical in um, how powerful they seem. And whenever something like this comes up on my radar, I'm, I'm, I'm really skeptical. Like, like, really? Is this thing really that good? Does it really do this? So um, I've got Dr. Scott on this week, and we're going to talk about this. And he has a long history of working with hyperbaric oxygen therapy and will tell us how to use it because there's a lot of different ways to use it. And as he says, please don't just get in the tank. There's a lot more to it than that. So we're going to find out sort of, you know, how well does this actually work? How to use it, the different varieties of it, um, and especially for cognitive health, um, which is what the Aviv Clinic is using it for. So we're going to get with Dr. Scott in just a moment after a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker. If you go to insidetracker.com slash ageist, you'll save 20% on all their products. So what is Inside Tracker? Inside Tracker is a key part of my health and wellness program. It tracks 43 of my blood-based biomarkers. How does it work? Well, you can go to a commercial lab, um, probably the same lab that your doctor uses, or you can conveniently have them come directly to your house and do a blood draw. It takes about five minutes. And then the results come in on my phone, on an app. It shows exactly where my results are in this very easy to understand graphical interface, no mysteries. And it'll tell me 
how to optimize based on a food-first plan. Um, sometimes they add a couple supplements, but mostly it's just about food. How do I eat? And so how effective is this? Well, I followed their recommendations last year, and I reduced my LDL, bad cholesterol, by like 19% in the course of just four months. I think it's a great program. As I mentioned earlier, I'm trying a new way of eating, a new sort of diet plan. And I am most certainly going to be looking at my inside tracker results in a couple of weeks to see how does this affect things? Um, Am I on the right track? Is this sort of eating right for me or not? And I'll be able to see right away with my inside tracker results. Go to insidetracker.com slash ages. Save 20% on all their products. Hey, Dr. Scott, how are you today? Hey, David. I'm good. How about you? I'm all right. Um, So we're going to talk about HBOT today, which is hyperbaric oxygen therapy, something you know a Mm -hmm. lot about. Mm -hmm. Indeed. I think where I want to go initially is how did you... What was your first introduction to mm-hmm. HBOT? Um, how did you come across this? So when I was in medical school, I guess I was how old? Maybe 25 years old or so. I was in a facility, a place called Shock Trauma, which is a uh, which is a large trauma center in Baltimore. And inside this particular facility, you have a large hyperbaric chamber in the basement. And so I'm a third year medical student. And when you're a third year medical student, you're really just trying to figure out what you want to do with the rest of your career. What kind of specialty you want to go into? Do you want to be a trauma surgeon? Do you want to be an ER doctor? Do you want to be an OBGYN physician? So you kind of rotate through. And um, I grew up the son of a chiropractor. So I grew up pretty alternatively. And I always knew that I wanted to do something that was going to be out of the box and try to figure out a way how I could kind of bridge the chasm between the allopathic or the conventional medical world and the alternative world. I mean, at that point, it was just called the alternative world. There was no such thing as a functional medicine doctor when I, I, maybe when I started medical school, but certainly when I didn't, when I grew up with with my dad and in his chiropractic office. And so I was always looking for a way you could kind of bridge that chasm. And so I got, obviously there was all these (laughs) specialties that you learn about, like, Ooh, you could be a radiologist and you can make $800,000 a year looking at a screen the rest of your life, or you could be a dermatologist and look at skin the rest of your life. And so I got tantalized by that stuff a little bit, but my, my mission really kind of stayed pretty steady, consistent. And then as I was going through this particular shock trauma center in Baltimore, I had no idea that I was going to be so intrigued by a technology that they were using in the basement to treat people with severe burns, severe infections, soft tissue injury, partial amputations, those are the main things that I saw. And what I would experience was I saw these people go into this chamber and come out like remarkably better, like within 90 minutes off oftentimes. And sometimes they would go in on a ventilator and they would be extubated in the chamber and come out like and walk out of the chamber, like some ridiculous things with carbon monoxide poisoning, especially. And so when you're a resident, at least when I was a resident, every three nights at this shock trauma center, we would be up for 30 hours. So it's called Q3 call, 30 hour call. And so I was exhausted, but I was almost like transformed overnight when I saw what was happening in these chambers. And I started thinking about 
the technology. I started talking to the people that were running the chambers down in the basement, and I realized how simple the technology was, that it was just a combination of increased inspired oxygen and increased atmospheric pressure. And if you combine these two things together, you had this fantastic shift in physiology immediately that was healing these people. I went into the research from there, and I saw that, that so much research had been done over the last 50 or 60 years, but especially during that time over the last 10 years when I was just learning about it, in all these different type of conditions that are being treated all over the world. And it was kind of like that missing link for me because I realized how simple the technology was. And I realized, well, not many people know about this technology, so I could become an expert in it pretty quickly. So that was always a positive. <laughs> so, um, and that I could really change a paradigm and bring in the technology that could really be used both on the conventional side as it was already being do done and also on the alternative side at the same time. Could you describe to us this chamber that it was in the, when, when I hear like chamber basement of hospital, I'm thinking, sure. you know, it looks like a submarine. <laughs> Scary. It looks like, it, it oh, looks okay. like a, it looks like a submarine kind of machine. And, and it's basically a, a hard metal. It's a metal um, circular structure that is um, the best way to think about it is, is like a submarine. It's like a small little submarine that is above ground, but it simulates the pressure that you would feel under a certain amount of seawater. And it's big enough to fit a number of people. These are called multi-place chambers. So you have multiple, multiple people that can sit and get treated all at the same time. There's different types of chambers available. There are these multi-place chambers where you have multiple people and you have what are called mono-place chambers, which, which are for one individual at a time. But mostly in these academic centers and these trauma centers and actually in diving locations around the world, also the Israelis have these multi-place chambers where you can get multiple people in there at the same time so you can get treatment. Uh, but there's various different types of chambers available. For, but it was a bit of a daunting thing when I first saw it too, David. I was like, what is this submarine looking thing in the basement? But the technology has been around forever. It's been around since the like early 1900s, really in the form that it is now. Uh, there actually is even a longer history. I mean, the first sealed chambers that represented what we now know as a hyperbaric chamber was actually invented in the 1600s, almost the 1700s actually. And it was just a sealed room that had no air that could go in it and no air that could go out of it unless you shoved air in with an organ bellow. So they attached an organ bellow to it and they would shove air in it and call it a hyperbaric environment or suck air out and call it a hypo, H-Y-P-O, baric environment. So they were using these chambers like that for almost a hundred years with very little data to talk about exactly how they were working, that all these kind of ways that they were doing it. And it wasn't until the 1900s when it became more of a medical technology where they figured out what's happening physiologically like why it was working, why it was helping people in all these various conditions. And the simplicity of it was it was just the oxygen and the pressure combined that were driving more oxygen in circulation. And as a result of that, it had this acute or this immediate effect and this long-term effect, which was more based on the epigenetic shift or the DNA expression shift that was happening related to all this oxygen getting into circulation. So that's the quick and dirty of how I got involved. And then over the the finishing of residency and the starting of my own practice, I created what, what I would call an integrative approach to hyperbaric therapy that combines not only hyperbaric therapy, but also how you can optimize kind of before, during, and after hyperbaric therapy to synergize with the treatment itself and to make it work better. Fast. I'm just, I'm, I'm imagining these guys in like the, whatever, 16th century with <laughs> like. 
Okay. Yeah, no, crazy. Yeah. Amazing. So, um, you mentioned the Israelis. And so I know, I mean, I've seen some of the stuff out of the Aviv clinic, um, mm-hmm. some of the, the brain stuff. Um, you want to describe what they're doing and, and what they're getting there? So Dr. Shai Afradi, he's the medical director of the Aviv clinics. They're based out of Israel, out of Tel Aviv. I was out to visit them in 2018. And they had a large endowment, uh, which was given by a former patient. And they created this whole center that was based on, initially it was treating things that were usually treated in a hyperbaric environment. But what they did was they realized that they had a huge capability to do research at this particular facility. So they have sort of a verticalized system where they have animal models and they also do human trials as well. And what they were doing initially was they published some studies on stroke, on traumatic brain injury, on fibromyalgia, and they were transformative studies in the world of hyperbaric medicine. This is back in 2013 to 2020-ish. And then from there, they transferred over or they sort of transitioned over to what they call their reverse aging program. And the reverse aging program that they've developed is a there's a diagnostic component of it. So they do a bunch of diagnostics beforehand. The therapeutics are mostly hyperbaric therapy, maybe some additional things, but not much, although they're increasing it all the time. And the last part is doing some of those diagnostics again after hyperbaric treatment was over to see what that shift looked like. So some of the things that they would look like, look at, for example, would be the brain. So they would look at the brain before one of these reverse aging protocols. And so this protocol is 60 sessions, six zero sessions, Monday through Friday for three months in a row. So that's the reverse aging protocol that they developed. And so they did brain imaging beforehand and they do brain imaging afterwards. And they'd see how the brain would regrow blood vessels and become much more robust in its ability to to actually uh, to do the things that you want it to do. Because as the brain ages, our brains start deteriorating after about the age of 50 or so, the the blood vessels in the brain start deteriorating. And as a result of that, the brain function starts to slowly deteriorate over time in normal Western culture. This doesn't happen in in indigenous places and other places because uh, it's because of diet, it's because of lifestyle, it's because of toxins, it's because of um, alcohol, it's because of drugs, you know, all those kinds of things all play into this. But for the most part, Western individuals, their brains start shrinking, unfortunately, around age 50 or so. And so what they saw is that they could regenerate a lot of the blood vessels that had been damaged or degenerated because of this, you know, quote unquote, normal aging process. So they have brain, brain images before, they have brain images afterwards. They have cardiac images too, where they checked on the vascularization of the heart before and after a hyperbaric protocol. And they actually looked at something called a VO2 max, where they would check people's ability to utilize oxygen on a minute to minute basis. And that went up dramatically with these protocols. They also looked at, um, they also looked at sexual function. They published a study on erectile dysfunction and how hyperbaric therapy is as powerful as Viagra to give you erections after a longer protocol, because it's just a vascular issue. You can increase the blood flow, the the ability to get more blood to the sexual organs, you're going to have better sexual function, just like you're going to have better heart function and better brain function. And then they also looked at various blood markers as well as, as signs of aging, one of them being something called senescent cells. Senescent cells are 
otherwise known as zombie cells in some some places. But the, the reason why they're called zombie cells is that they don't die and they don't divide, but they just stick around and don't work anymore. And they cause inflammation. And as we get older, they the, the population of senescent cells increases. And as they increase, so does your risk of cancer and heart disease and inflammation degeneration. So the study that they did looking at this reverse aging population, they saw senescent cell populations go down about 30%, which is the really the one of the only therapies that has ever been shown to decrease senescent cell populations. There's a couple others. There's one particular peptide called Epitalon that's shown some of this, but very few therapies have shown an ability to really address senescent cells. And that's huge. The second thing that they checked was telomere length and telomeres are on the ends of your chromosomes. They're kind of like the tips or like the, uh, the, um, the caps of your chromosomes and the caps, as you get older, get shorter and shorter until that those caps go away. And then the cell, the cell dies as a result of that, that chromosome, the cell that the, the, the chromosome was in dies. And so the telomere length actually increased about 20% in a hyperbaric environment over this reverse aging, reverse aging protocol. And so as a result of that, there was a lot of excitement with all these things, right? But what it comes down to, David, is that what hyperbaric therapy is doing is it's very much working at that cellular level. And what they did in, this, in these studies was show that these things are really happening. All right. My first question is, is this real? Like, <laughs> do you believe what they're, like, I, I saw that stuff, I'm not a, I'm not a doc. Um, mm -hmm. Like, is this data being cherry-picked? Is this mm -hmm. for real? It's a really good question. You can't argue with the imaging, as far as I'm concerned. You can't argue with somebody's brain that's either had a stroke or a traumatic brain injury, gets into a hyperbaric chamber, and then you can see their brains like come back to life. Now, if there's dead tissue, that tissue doesn't come back. But it, around a dead tissue, there's a lot of just malfunctioning tissue. So in a stroke, it's called the peri-ischemic area. In a traumatic brain injury, it's called the pericontusional area. And in aging, you just see less blood flow in certain areas. And if you can see after a hyperbaric protocol, those areas reverse themselves. Like those areas that were around the tissue that was dead, the peri-ischemic, the pericontusional, come back to life. There really is no arguing with that as far as I'm concerned. Now, some of the blood markers you can argue with because it gets into the details of what type of cells they use, do telomeres matter, uh, and, and a lot of other things. And so there's certainly some nuance and detail here that absolutely can be argued. I mean, like any other study, right? But, but I do think that the robustness of the imaging is hard to argue with. And, you know, from my own personal practice over the years that I've been doing this, I see this clinically. I see the clinical changes that are happening in people on a, you know, on a daily basis, on a minute to minute basis. Sometimes if you have somebody that comes in there with an acute concussion and they have symptoms, and then you put them in a chamber and like for an acute concussion protocol, you're going to see the benefits immediately. Almost. I mean, you're going to see them. Sometimes they'll get better almost when they get into the chamber itself. And so it's like, it could be almost immediate in some cases. So it, it, it doesn't, there's always going to be arguments. There's always going to be ways to kind of spin data. And I think that there are pieces of this, especially uh, telomeres and senescent cells, which you can certainly argue um, that there might be a counterpoint to that. Maybe they didn't use the right cell types. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe telomeres don't matter. 
so there are certainly pieces of it that you can argue with, but you really can't argue with imaging and you really can't argue with results as far as I'm concerned. So fascinating. So um, I'm going to continue to play the skeptic here. Uh, Please do. <laughs> so, I like it. It's important. <laughs> I get you. I get a lot of crazy stuff that comes my way. Um, uh, so do and, I. Uh, <laughs> right? There's just like you oh, know, put a bindi dot on your head and live 200 years or something. Uh, oh, that doesn't happen. I thought that's what happened when you did. <laughs> oh, no, you know, I I tried it, man. No, uh, no impact. So ah, too uh, bad. One, All right. Okay. Yeah, it was really unfortunate. Um, Damn. So uh, with these sort of things, so say, um, let's go to the, to the, say the cognitive issues mm -hmm. um, and say somebody had uh, concerns around cognitive issues and they were going to, and we're just going to, we'll just stay with Aviv because I know there, there, there's a lot of data on them. So say you had a, you had some kind of cognitive issue, be um, advanced age or brain injury or something, and you go in there and, and you do their 60 treatments. How long is this a permanent regeneration of the brain? Mm -hmm. Is this something we have to go back and do again? How, how does that work? So you ask a very, very important question. And this is really the crux of my personal practice, my consulting work the work that I do with clinics, this is not just about getting people into hyperbaric environments, especially if they have a long-term goal or a chronic issue. Because if they have an acute issue, if they have an acute trauma, acute inflammation, acute injury, hyperbaric therapy is fantastic for accelerating and making more efficient the whole healing process. It doesn't matter what else you do, really. I mean, it's going to help almost always. And I saw this firsthand when I was in the hospital. I see this all the time when I have people come, people, have people come in with acute injuries, whether it's uh, iatrogenic, which means that we did it to them, like it's a surgery, like you have a surgical indication, somebody comes in after a surgery, they're going to get better 20 to 70% faster if they get into a hyperbaric environment after their surgery. Ideally, they get in a couple of times before their surgery to optimize tissue oxygenation. And then after the surgery, they come in for three to five sessions their healing time is going to be cut on average by about half. Pretty impressive. You don't have to do a whole lot more in the acute setting when you're just revving up the whole body's ability to heal, getting more oxygen to tissue, decreasing inflammation, decreasing swelling, getting stem cells released, killing bugs, increasing oxygen flow into tissue and lymphatic flow out. That's all happening immediately. No problem. However, this is gets to your question. If you have a chronic issue, if you have a long-term goal, What's going to be more robust for you is if you're optimizing your health ahead of time. If you're just smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol every night and thinking that hyperbaric therapy is going to help you, it's unlikely it's going to help you over the long term. Now, there's no data here, David, but what I can tell you from my practice is if I optimize health in the clients that I work with prior to them going into the chamber, optimize vitamins, minerals, nutrients, gut health, immune health, hormones, I have a whole program I take people through called health optimization medicine. It was founded by a colleague of mine. It's actually a nonprofit now, but I have my own practice based on that work. And that's looking at that foundational health principle idea. So if you're going to utilize oxygen effectively, you have to have all the machinery to be able to do that. If you don't, you're going to get into trouble or you're not going to get trouble. As, Wait, tell me yeah. back up. Okay. What does yeah, trouble sure. look like? The trouble can look a lot of different ways. 
But in, in essence, what I mean is that when you're bringing a lot more oxygen in the system, you're creating something called oxidative stress. You are making more products of energy metabolism. These are called reactive oxygen species. Your body likes these things in short amounts. When you exercise, when you stress your body in like high heat or cold, you create these oxidative molecules. It's called hormetic stress. It's a stress in the body that makes your body react by creating more of an antioxidant surge. So the body has these antioxidants that, that, uh, that neutralize the, the reactive oxygen species. And then the body in between that time though, where, where the reactive oxygen species were around creates new signaling, signaling to make the body function better. And it just depends on what the stimulus is, but in a hyperbaric environment, that's this epigenetic shift that I was describing before. However, if you are antioxidant deficient, if you're toxic, if you uh, are just in a kind of a poor state of affairs in general, you're not going to tolerate treatment as well as you potentially could. And that could get people into trouble in the sense of not feeling well, getting flu-like symptoms, just feeling poorly after treatment. It's diagnostic for me in the sense that if I know, so some, it's not uncommon for the, like for the first week or two for people to feel a little bit, not as good as they usually would, because it takes some time for the body to kind of respond with the antioxidant surge and, and kind of get things to be back in sort of a, a homeostatic level and continue th therapy and, and continue to, to benefit from it. Uh, but if people get very, very sick, very quickly, uh, or very, very sensitive, then I know that they need a lot more optimization before they're really going to be able to tolerate hyperbaric therapy. And this is actually very instructive in certain things like Lyme disease, for example, we do a lot of great work in Lyme in the hyperbaric environment because the spirochetes, the, the Lyme itself is very, it does not like high oxygen environments. So it's going to kill off the bugs, but you need to be able to when you kill off the bugs, you create an inflammatory response. And like that inflammatory response need to be mitigated by optimizing levels of vitamins, minerals, nutrients, and all that kind of thing. If you don't do that, people can get very, very sick and not be able to tolerate uh, hyperbaric therapy because they get so sick um, and feel so crappy. And so is it's really important. Hertzing? To support. Yeah. Is that called Hertzing? Yeah. yeah so Hertzing is when, yeah, Hertzing is usually used in the term of, it's more general than just Lyme disease, but usually used in Lyme where you're giving some sort of therapy and cause severe symptomatic response to it. Ah. It could be anything from fevers to flu-like symptoms, to GI issues, to severe joint pains. Um, so we can cause people to herx in the chamber for sure. And that's okay. As long as they're being well supported on both ends of that spectrum, the, the cellular machinery spectrum, along with the detoxification aspects of it as well. So it's just important for me when I'm thinking about like a long-term goal or a chronic issue, knowing that the ecosystem is likely pretty disturbed in some way. If we're looking at like a long-term problem now, if it's reverse aging, it's a little bit different. It's not as, as significant, but especially if you have a chronic infection, chronic autoimmunity, chronic inflammation, uh, in any capacity, whether it be just those words, or if it's dementia of some sort, if it's Parkinson's, if it's reflex sympathetic dystrophy, like a chronic pain syndrome, these are all causing dysregulation of, of your inflammatory cascades, your cytokines, your hormones. And so like all these things, it's about looking at all together. If you look at, at just putting somebody in the chamber, you can get in trouble because you don't look at those things. And funny, it's like, I had this, I was asked to speak at a hyperbaric conference during the pandemic. And the first title that I had was, please don't put them in the chamber. <laughs> and because of course, if you have a therapy, what are you going to want to do? You're going to want to use it on everybody. And so one of the roles that I have in the 
in, in, the, in the hyperbaric world I, that I think that I've sort of found myself in is trying to educate people in when is the best time to use a chamber, what types of chambers are best to use for what particular condition, and when to not go into the chamber. And I think that's really what's it's it's common. If you're a cardiologist, you get an echocardiogram on your patients, right? If you're uh, if, hammer looking for a nail, hammer nail, exactly. Perfect. <laughs> and so I I very much try to say, although I mean, look, I'm biased. I think that everybody can benefit from hyperbaric therapy at some point in their life. As to the question is not if; it's just a question of when and how you optimize that. So if somebody comes to me. David with a chronic issue, say, say they have migraines, for example, that's a common one. So like, Dr. Scott, I have migraines. I would love to see if hyperbaric therapy helps me. I'm like, okay, well, hyperbaric therapy may help with your migraines, but what are you doing additionally to optimize your health and, and look at why these migraines might be happening? And what can we do to kind of focus on that before we get you into the chamber and see how that can synergize with the other work that you're doing? That's really the goal. And so 80% of the time that I'm talking to people on consultations, uh, when they call me or I have people that I, ch- I talk with people all over the world, 80% of the time that I speak with them, it's not about hyperbaric therapy at all. I like to call it like my, my smoke screen. It's like they, they get, they talk to me, they, they find me from hyperbaric therapy. Then I'm talking about their diet, their supplements. I'm talking about lights and sauna and everything else that you could think of. And then I'm like, now we can talk about hyperbaric therapy because we've gotten the, you know, really the basic stuff addressed first. Once that's addressed, or once that's being addressed, then you can really think about how hyperbaric therapy can really optimize and synergize and accelerate everything that you want to do. Um, I just want to go back to Aviv. They're pulsing, right? What is it that they're pulsing? Sure. So what we do, especially at deeper pressures in a hyperbaric environment, is that we give something called air breaks. And so as I alluded to in the beginning, we're increasing the amount of atmospheric pressure in the chamber. We're simulating the pressure you feel under a certain amount of seawater and you're increasing the amount of oxygen that you breathe. Typically, we're breathing 21% oxygen at sea level. In a hyperbaric environment, you can increase that up to 100%. So it's the combination of the the two that drives more oxygen into circulation. Typically, we carry oxygen on red blood cells. There are oxygen-carrying capacity cell. So we have oxygen that we breathe. It gets onto the red blood cell. It's carried on something called hemoglobin. We have 250 million hemoglobin molecules per red blood cell. We have four sites per hemoglobin to carry oxygen. So you have 1 billion oxygen molecules per red blood cell. Sounds like a lot. It is a lot. But most of us are doing a really good job saturating those oxygen sites already because if you've ever checked a pulse oximeter on your finger, it'll measure the amount of oxygen saturated on the red blood cells themselves. So for most people with normal lungs, it's between 97 and 100%. So you would think that there's not a lot much, a lot more you could do, but there is actually, because you can actually saturate the liquid or the plasma of your bloodstream with oxygen. That's liquid O2. And the way you do that is by using the pressure. So that pressure drives more oxygen, not only on the red blood cells, if there's any more sites available, but actually in the plasma or the liquid of your blood. And for your listeners, just a quick thing on oxygen, it's kind of a big deal. We need it as the final electron acceptor in our mitochondria, which is the organelle in our cells that makes energy. Without oxygen, we know, all of us know that we're going to die pretty quickly. And that's because we can't make energy in our mitochondria. Our mitochondria gets stressed without oxygen. They start causing the inflammatory cascades and things start dying very quickly. So in a hyperbaric environment, we're able to get more oxygen to the mitochondria uh, to make more energy, basically. And so 
But the downside of that, of course, is that we're getting, we're flooding the body with a lot more oxygen and that can cause oxidative stress. And we've talked about this already that we can have a balanced antioxidant response that takes time. So what you want to do in, in the interim is to mitigate oxidative stress by what are called air breaks. So every 20 minutes when you're breathing hundred percent oxygen out of even a lot of clinics around the country, the ones that I work with, um, they'll have you breathe 21% oxygen instead of hundred percent oxygen. So that was the first reason why we use these air breaks. They were used to mitigate oxidative stress and potential for oxygen toxicity. However, it seems that these, uh, these air breaks going from hundred percent oxygen to 21% oxygen, again, the amount of oxygen that we breathe at sea level is 21% oxygen. That Delta, that change from hundred percent to 21% simulates the same kinds of stimulus that you would feel if you were at, al at altitude. And because it's, and because it's the body sees that as a relative called a relative hypoxia, the, the term for this that they use in Israel. And now that we use is called the hyperoxic hypoxic paradox. So extra oxygen that's simulating low oxygen. And that's why it's a paradox. And so it's, it actually stimulates all these things to, to be released from the body that increase mitochondrial biogenesis. So new mitochondria, new blood vessels, and more stem cells being released as a result of those air breaks. So we're using the air breaks to prevent oxygen toxicity, but even more so now we're actually using them to stimulate new mitochondria, new blood, new stem cells and new blood vessels. So, um, I, I, you use the word hormetic hormesis is like my favorite. I love hormesis is my favorite thing. And it sounds like what you're talking about is by pulsing the oxygen up and down, you're, you're, you're causing this adaptive hormetic yes. adaptation, right? Yes. Huh. Fascinating. Yeah. So it's certainly uh, a hormetic, yeah. I mean, going into the chamber is hormetic because it's causing an oxidative load, uh, with this oxygen. And that's causing all these uh, epigenetic changes that are happening almost immediately, but also over the long-term angiogenesis, new blood vessels, stem cells that are getting matured, inflammatory cytokines that are being downregulated from the, uh, from the epigenetic sides, from the cellular side of things. And so certainly hormesis is happening just from the oxygen itself, but also, uh, or and from the pressure together, but, but changing that oxygen is also another hormetic adaptive response as well but happening in a different way, which is super interesting because you wouldn't think that you'd be pretending to be in altitude when you're at 33 feet below sea simulated in the chamber. So it's super interesting. And so we're starting to use more of these air breaks in different types of protocols as well, not even just for reverse aging systemic kinds of things, but also neurologic pressures. And so we use different pressures depending on the indication, David. So for Neurologic indications, we typically use pressures between 1.3 and 2 atmospheres, which is the equivalent of about 12 to 33 feet of seawater. For more systemic, outside the central nervous system, we typically use pressures between 2 atmospheres and 2.8, which is about 33 wow. to about 60 feet of seawater, basically. Hmm. So interesting fact, although we don't use the chamber for this reason, at 3 atmospheres, which is at 3 ATA, sorry, 3 atmospheres, which is 66 feet of seawater. You can saturate so much oxygen into your plasma that you no longer need red blood cells to maintain physiologic function. So that's how much you can do. That's how much oxygen you can get in the body. Now, you don't always want to do that because of the oxidative stress and, and the potential toxicity issues that you have, but we use it in the trauma setting for severe anemia, Jehovah's Witness patients, 
you know, hemorrhage, et cetera, to temporize people until they can get their blood volume back in that way, because you can get so much into the liquid of the blood. So there's a lot of power in that, but there's a lot of nuance too. Like you don't always, like more is not always better. Like it's not the American way here. We want to, you know, fine tune our, our protocols so that we're focused on the brain or focused on the body. And that's what we do. And there's various types of chambers that we can use depending on the pressures that can kind of help us modulate that. Okay. So um, there are these different kinds of chambers. There's this sort of home version. Mm -hmm. There's, um, you know, there's various sort of clinics around the corner where you can go in, there are clear plastic tubes. And then there's like the super duper chambers like in hospitals. Right. So let's say I come to you and I say, Dr. Scott, I feel fine, but I want to be smarter. Can you make me smarter? Make my <laughs> brain work better. You what and like you, what's the 10 protocol? CEOs in Silicon Valley that have asked me the same question. So. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. It's my megalomania. What could I say? No, no, that's okay. When I when I lived in in the Bay for for many years, for about nine years, I I ran across many people that just wanted their brains to function better. These are yeah. people that are working at a very high level all the time. They need to be on all the time until they're not on, and they need to find ways to sleep, of course, too. And so, brain function's a big deal. And so, if you came to me and said, "I want my I want brain optimization." I would tell yeah. you that the there's as I was alluding to, there's different types of chambers. There are mild units. These are units that go to what's called 1.3 atmospheres. These are chambers that um, can be used in the home. They're usually soft-sided. Uh, they can either be a chamber on its own they, or they can come with an oxygen concentrator as well. So you get oxygen that kind of gets piped into these chambers and you wear a face mask or a nasal Is that panel. safe? Like at home? Yeah. yeah. So they are because the amount of oxygen coming in is not a huge amount. And are you going to blow the, up your, your, your tent? No, you know, no, like, no, I don't no. know. Oxygen. I don't know. seems kind of scary. So you have to, when, you, when you're using hundred percent oxygen, you absolutely have to be careful. And when you're going to deeper pressures, you absolutely have to be careful regarding, regardless of the type of mechanism that you're getting the oxygen, but at milder pressures with oxygen concentrators, there's very, very low risk of, of any issues because these, these chambers are made. So there's always more air coming in and there's always mm. air being taken out. So they have mm. valves that pop open. So when you get to certain pressure, the valves pop open and then the pressure gets released and there's continuing to be more oxygen that's pressed more, excuse me, more air that's being compressed and brought into the, the, the unit. So, um, certainly at deeper pressures with hundred percent oxygen, you have to be more careful. And in clinic settings, like medical grade settings, you really are going in with like with cotton clothing, you're not bringing anything that could be flammable. You're not bringing anything into some of these places, depending on if you, there's hundred percent oxygen. Like I've worked with clinics that have hundred percent oxygen. You wear scrubs, like cotton undergarments only, and that's all you bring in there. And then some of them have some of the medical grade chambers have like, they'll have TVs outside and they'll have some, uh, they'll have some intercom kinds of things. So you can obviously talk to people. You can hear the movies and things that you're hearing or that you're watching. Uh, but the mild units are, are, are very safe um, if they're used in this way. And they can be really great like for, for cognitive optimization, for muscle recovery, for jet lag, for overall sort of day-to-day -day optimization kinds of things. Um, 1.3 to about 2.0 is that sweet spot for, for brain optimization. So for most people that are using this for more wellness related things. I think this, the mild chambers are actually pretty good for that. And, you, and then you can integrate those with other types of technologies that can help with blood flow. So like I'll have people that have injuries on their shoulders or 
their knees, bring in devices that increase blood flow in those particular areas, like a like low-level light therapy, for example, is a good one, or pulse electromagnetic field technologies, or even um, the electrostimulation kinds of things. Like so, like electrostim. I I work with an athlete that had a like an Achilles tendon sprain. It was all swollen, and she used the mild unit. They told her it was going to get she was going to be out for four to six weeks. She was out for only two weeks with using the electric sim in, in a mild unit. So I think you could do a lot of good sort of day-to-day operational kinds of things, cognitive optimization, um, but you're not talking about just like one therapy session. You're talking about a protocol of therapy that will really be able to kind of give you that shift that we were talking about before, the shift of epigenetic expression, angiogenesis, new blood vessels, and things like that. So I would say to you, if you came to me, David, I'd be like, you should probably need at least 20 sessions in a chamber that's between 1.3 and 1.75 atmospheres. And if it was in the milder units, I tend to be on the higher side, like 20 to 30, up to 40 sessions. And then if, if it's on the, uh, in the medical grade, it's a little bit less, maybe 20 sessions, 15 to 20 sessions to really see a significant sort of bump that was sustainable for a period of time. If you did less than that, you may not be able to see a huge amount of benefit over a longer period of time. So we're talking like 60 to 90 minutes, um, yes. somewhere 1.3 atmospheres or more. And the, and the oxygen is what? So usually the oxygen is being given via um, either an oxygen concentrator and you're wearing a mask, um, uh-huh. or it's being at a medical facility that has these kinds of units in medical grade facilities. It'll be either a mask or it'll actually put a, a hood on top of your head. And that's giving you oxygen that way as well. And, and are you pulsing it? So straight, in straight general, straight. we, so like, as I was alluding to before, we are starting to do it more for the, the neurologic protocols, but we don't have a lot of data yet. We don't know if the Delta is enough because the Delta from two atmospheres, hundred percent oxygen to 21% oxygen is different than the Delta from 1.3 atmospheres or 1.5 atmospheres with hundred percent oxygen to 21% oxygen. We just don't know. But I've been starting to play around with it a little bit because I, I don't see any harm in it for the most part. It does, it's certainly going to be potentially beneficial and there's really no downside to it. So we've been using it more, but there really is no data outside of the two atmosphere pressure at this time for using the, the, uh, the difference in, in, in the air brakes. I have some people, um, they contact me and they say, well, um, I want to increase my stem cells. So I come to you, Dr. Scott, I say... Hey, I want to increase my stem cells. I want to release more stem cells. What, so, what do I do? So the chambers, they don't make more stem cells, but what they do is release the stem cells from your bone marrow where they're mostly made and up to like exponential numbers of stem cells. So this is why we're using hyperbaric therapy and regenerative medicine a lot because the yield, if you're doing stem cell harvesting is going to be extremely, extremely augmented if you get into a hyperbaric chamber just a couple times before you get the stem cell harvesting procedure. And so on the medical side, we're using it for uh, stem cell transplants as well, actually. And at least it's been studied in that way. And, but in the more regenerative side, so people that are getting stem cells harvested, they'll use hyperbaric therapy beforehand to increase the number of stem cells that are, being, that are, that are easily mobilized from the bone marrow, for example. And so what happens in, in the chamber is that you're mobilizing these stem cells from the bone marrow and these stem cells go where they need to go to help optimize tissue that's either inflamed, infected, degenerating, you know, all those kinds of things as well. So, 
And how many, and what did you say, like uh, three, four sessions, something like that? Even after one session, you get a, oh. a significant stem cell boost. In fact, the Israelis did this data. You get a stem cell boost every time you go into the chamber up until about 40 or 60 sessions. So you're still going to get more released every single time as you get into the chamber, each of those times that you go in. But am I going to run out of stem cells? So no, the body just makes more. You know, there, there's no, oh. it's, it's just like... Um, it's just a stimulus for your bone marrow to make more stem cells. And that's probably why you can continue to release them as you can, even after 40 sessions is because the, the stimulus is that the body is always making these stem cells. And now that all of them have been released, it gives the signal for the bone marrow to make more as well. And okay. And then I say, I come to you and I say, Dr. Scott, I'm recovering from cancer of some kind. Okay. Um, and I'm concerned about senescent cells. I'd like to remove them. Um, what, what would you do then? So the first step, as I mentioned before, is that 80% of my call would be about, well, what else are you doing to optimize your health and, and improve your overall risk of recurrence in general? But then you'd be thinking about how hyperbaric therapy can help. And we certainly know that the Israeli study, the Aviv study, did show that the maximum senescent cell decrease was around 30 sessions in the chamber. So somewhere around 30 or 40 sessions to decrease senescent cells is probably what we'd want to do. But again, it's, it's always a bigger conversation about, you know, about the type of cancer that they've had and kind of what their goals are, where they are in their treatment. One of the things that I get a lot, and it's a good question is does hyperbaric therapy make cancer come back or does it make cancer mm. grow? And right. it's, it's a reasonable question because we know in the chamber, you're improving vascular flow, you're increasing angiogenesis, new blood vessels. And so people worry, well, if you're making new blood vessels, does that mean my cancer is going to come back or the blood vessels around the cancer are going to grow? And they've done a number of reviews looking at this very topic, and there's no indication that hyperbaric therapy makes cancer grow at all. In fact, it may prevent metastatic transition as well, if, if it's a localized tumor, but that's very early data. So we're not sure about that, but <clears throat> we know that cancer cells actually grow in a very different way compared, sorry, cancer blood vessels grow as compared to regular cell, uh, regular blood vessels. Um, they grow because of a hypoxic environment. They grow because they create a low oxygen state around the tumor. And then they, as a result of that, they stimulate the production of disorganized blood vessels around the tumor to help it grow. So hyperbaric therapy doesn't work that way. It works by the usual ways of making new blood vessels. And so as a result of that, there's really no indication that hyperbaric therapy makes cancer grow or metastasize, excuse me, or anything, or anything remotely like that. However, you know, we are always looking at these things in context. I've had, so hyperbaric therapy is, is FDA approved or insurance approved for patients that have had radiation therapy for cancer treatment and have had a radiation injury that's been ongoing for more than six months after the radiation exposure. So these are patients that have had prostate cancer, breast cancer, head and neck cancers, brain cancers, and have had radiation injuries that don't get better or that actually some of these radiation injuries don't even show up until many years after the radiation has actually been used because radiation is one of these sort of indolent exposures that depletes areas of stem cells and blood vessels and can cause tissue damage over the long-term, not even just in the short-term. So we're using hyperbaric therapy for radiation injury recovery, and it's phenomenally effective for this. Over 80% of people get better and it's vastly underutilized. We're also using hyperbaric therapy to help chemotherapy and radiation work better. Uh, those are not insurance approved, but in other countries are using it very commonly. 
and they're actually using it for the oxidative piece in the chemistry in the, in the, for the chemotherapy and on for radiation radiation is oxygen requiring so you need for radiation to work you need oxygen to be getting into the tissue so if you can get more oxygen into the tissue radiation is going to work better so we're using hyperbaric therapy in combination with radiation we're also using it in combination with the ketogenic diet and with other sort of alternative means as ways to uh, to to stress cancer in the hyperbaric environment at the same time as they're being stressed in other ways like with the ketogenic diet for example so the, the, when you're talking about a hyperbaric environment are we talking like two atmospheres or are we talking like 1.3 so for most of the cancer work that we're doing it's going to be deeper pressures it's going to be okay. two atmospheres or 2.4 it just depends on the indication if we're looking at dementia like alzheimer's and parkinsons we're looking at traumatic brain injury or stroke your pressures are not as deep typically somewhere between 1.1.3 and 2.0 for the most part i see and so now let's just talk a little bit about, um, you know, the difference between, uh, you know, the sort of the submarine, um, which I guess you said you can go to three atmospheres, which sounds like you, you have to, to ten. About 10. Oh my God. So the reason why the, the submarines are built the way they are is these steel <laughs> submarines, right? It's like, so they can withstand a lot of pressure. Remember right. these were built to treat divers. So you have right. people that are diving hundreds right. of feet underneath the sea to right. build pylons or bridges or to build tunnels under the water. So these, these are called supersaturation kinds of deals, right? So they may not even be breathing uh, just air. They might be breathing oxygen and nitrogen and it gets, it gets or, or even helium sometimes at deeper pressures. So it's a lot more complicated. So if they get an injury at 120 feet below the sea, uh, a decompression illness, you have to dive them in a hyperbaric chamber to 120 feet so that you can mm. actually reverse the injury. So those chambers go very, very deep. However, for the most part, they're not used deeper than three atmospheres very, very often outside of diving injury. Um, so if somebody, I, I just want to talk a little bit about what these tanks are. Uh, okay. Because, so, you know, some of them, there's the, uh, there's the sort of type where you sort of sit in the thing, right? It's sort of like a tent you sit in it. Um, and then there's the, which seems more like a home sort of a thing you mm -hmm. could have. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are the uh, sort of tube things. And I've seen some that are like clear plastic tubes. Mm -hmm. I've seen some that are sort of like metal coffin type things with a little window. That seems mm -hmm. super claustrophobic to me. Um, <laughs> up until like, you know, the summer. More comforting. Some people like to be, you know. Or <laughs> there's some weird people out there. I don't know. <laughs> that would kind of freak me out. Um, so if, say, you wanted one of these things, um, you want to do HBOT at home. Okay. Um, Dr. Scott says, I, you know, I should do HBOT at home. W what should I be looking at? Is there, is there a company that makes these that, mm. that one, one can get? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are several companies that make the mild units in all the varieties that you can imagine. Some of them are going to be sort of a chair inside of them so that you, you're you fully, they look like teepees, actually, some of them. Mm -hmm. like looks like you could just put a chair in there. So like that's really nice for people that are very have challenges with mobility, for example, if you can't mm -hmm. get into a chamber very easily. So there's other ones with like a lazy boy kind of recliner. There's other ones that are full tube-like structures that are fully uh, you know, fully, you know, fully reclined or fully 
flat, I should say. So, but in the in essence, it's really not so much about it. It's about the pressures as much as mm-hmm. anything else. And then the design is sort of the, the secondary piece of it. So, 1.3 atmosphere chambers that can be at the home. There, they could be in any of the varieties that I just mentioned. But in, in essence, it's all going to the same pressure. It's just about what the the usability is, the utility is for that particular individual, as far as how easy it is to get into the chamber, what they're looking to do inside the chamber. Like I have a mild unit in my house that's uh, kind of has a like a reclined chair in it. And that way I can go in there. I sometimes do podcasts in there. I'll do my work. I'll meditate. I'll, I'll relax those kinds of things. And so I can, I also bring in new technologies. I can bring in my, I can bring my electric stem in there. I can bring my lights in there. I could bring in meditation stuff in there. And so it's nice because the, the soft units, the, the mild units, you can bring stuff in there. It's safe as long as it's not car battery size electricity. You know, I have a, a colleague, a colleague of mine, He's a, he's a practitioner in, in LA. He'll do, he'll bring in the, the lymphatic, um, what are they called? Like the, um, oh, the, yeah. the lymphatic squeezers. He'll bring those inside yeah, the, yeah. the chamber too. So, um, so you can certainly bring stuff in there, which is nice. Um, as far as brands, there's a lot of them out there. And the challenge is that, um, what I find David is that the chamber manufacturers are piss poor at giving you any good information because they just want to sell you a chamber. It's the hammer nail situation. So I often find people that have gotten chambers over the years and don't know how to use them or have been using them ineffectively. And they find me and they're like, oh, why didn't anybody tell me this from the beginning, how to use my chamber and what I should be doing. And and because the, the chamber manufacturers are very careful not to give medical advice, they just want to buy, you know, sell you a chamber. So one of the reasons I set up my company called HBOT Plus is HBOT Plus is the, is the name, is that yeah, I really wanted to make a company that could educate the clients that were interested in hyperbaric therapy and also not only just sort of educate sort of like on the high level, but also what protocols could look like depending on what you needed at the time and what kind of chambers would be most helpful for you as well. And, and also what the integrations would be at the same time. So like, what would be good for you to do before? What would, we, what, would we, what would be good for you to do during? And what would be good for you to do after, depending on what your goals might be? So the the company it's a technology company that's creating software, so a phone application with education and protocols and integrations. Hardware, we're doing some new things to hardware to make the chambers safer, more real time feedback, so you can do everything from your phone. You know what your pressure is, you know what your time is, you know what your oxygen is, all those kinds of things, and you can measure all that stuff. And I want to make them safer. I want to make them more uh, people more comfortable using them in their own homes because I think there's a lot of utility for people to be able to do that in that environment for the reasons I mentioned. But there are certain reasons why you wouldn't want to get into the chamber as well. If, if you have, if you have lung disease, if you have heart disease, if you have uncontrolled neurologic issues, you certainly don't want to go into any type of chamber. And these are medical technologies. They require prescriptions to go into whether you're in a mild unit or you're in a medical unit. And so the problem I see is that somebody gets a chamber, then like they invite their friends over, everybody's using the chamber. Nobody knows what the hell they're doing. And, and it's also, it's, for the most part, it's not going to hurt anybody uh, because the, the, especially the mild units are very safe, but like, are you really getting as, as much as you could out of the chambers? And, and is there something you could be doing to make it safer, to make it more effective? And, and, and so it's a bit of a wild west when it comes to the hyperbaric market, but what I'm trying to do is create a little bit more of a framework for it with, with my company. And then, and then hopefully it'll be better for everybody along the road. And these, um, uh, these home units, they're, uh, Oxygen. Like so they're pressurized with air. So they're okay. pressurized with air. So you, the whole thing's pressurized with 21% oxygen 
or uh-huh. for me, it's 15% oxygen because I live in Colorado. And then you have an oxygen concentrator, which is separate. And that uh-huh. pipes in oxygen through tubing that goes into the chamber and gives you oxygen via face mask or nasal cannula. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. There's a, there's a place around the corner for me here where I, I said, you have one. And they're like, yeah. I said, okay, what's the pressure? And I think they, I think it's one, three or something like that. Yeah. And I said, probably. are you doing oxygen? And they said, yeah. 90%. And you could just like walk in and it's like, here, have at it. Um, which seems like, Hmm, I don't know. Maybe so have somebody observed me with that hypothetically. And now not every place is doing this hypothetically that every time you're using oxygen and the chamber together, that requires a prescription, whether it be a MD, DO, a doctor of chiropractic, it, it depends on state licensing and boards and what they can do. But in general, once you're starting to use the concentrators along with mm. the chambers, it requires a prescription. The, the chambers themselves that go to 1.3 without oxygen don't necessarily require a prescription because mm-hmm. that's not necessarily, necessarily a medical treatment if you don't have the oxygen with it. So there's a bit of a nuance though, like every state's different. So I can't say about what, what's going on and where you are versus another state exactly because the laws are a little bit different. But in general, that's that's the overall legal framework for the most part. And which brings to my mind um, the question of what's the relationship between HBOT and the pharma industry? The pharma industry loves giving you things that are sort of like ongoing, right? Mm-hmm. They, they love that model. Um, and HBOT seems like a sort of a one and done. It's not good for pharmaceutical companies to have something like hyperbaric therapy. I'm so sad. Number one, oh, number one, huh. I'm sad for them too. There are lots to be sad about for them. They have made so much more money over the last couple of years than they've ever made before. Uh, the, there's no pharmaceutical in, in what I do. You can't patent oxygen. Right. It's, right I mean, right. you can patent a design for a hyperbaric chamber, but you can't patent oxygen itself. That's the drug that we're using. And it's one of the more powerful drugs that you can use because it's something that we naturally need. And we're just giving more of it in a prescribed way to work on that hormetic effect and work on optimizing your cellular function, your your overall regeneration, revitalization, et cetera. So that's why you can't get big studies in hyperbaric chambers. You can't get big studies mm-hmm. about hyperbaric therapy in general because there's just no money for it because there's no drug at the end of the rainbow that some pharmaceutical company is going to be able to, uh, able to market for a billion dollars a year. This is why during COVID times, we know hyperbaric therapy has been extremely helpful in patients with severe COVID disease at preventing people from getting on ventilators but they haven't been using it because it's just too difficult to do. It's not easy to get somebody in a hyperbaric chamber when they're requiring a lot of oxygen, 100% mm-hmm. true. But the, the focus is on pharmaceuticals because these are one and done kinds of things that, uh, that, can be char- that you can charge a lot of money for. Like, and and not, not to say that it should be mutually exclusive in really severe issues like this. So you should have the ability to do all these kinds of things. But we're studying hyperbaric therapy in, in post-COVID patients or long-haul uh, COVID patients or vaccine injured uh, patients that actually present very similarly to long haul COVID as well. And we're seeing remarkable, remarkable improvements in brain function, fatigue, pulmonary function using the hyperbaric environments, the mild units, the ones that I'm talking about, mm. like that you can have at your house. I mean, the, heart, the mm. medical grade units as well, um, depending on, on what's going on and what's available, but like f- fantastic opportunities to help people, but it's never going to be studied in a big way just because there's no money in it. There's no money in getting people into hyperbaric chambers. So there it's, it's a difficult 
thing to think about. There's a lot of politics. I mean, we can go into the traumatic brain injury world, the TBI world, and there's been a number of studies on hyperbaric therapy that have been quote unquote negative studies that show that hyperbaric therapy doesn't work. It's but because it's just because of how they did the study and how they're interpreting the data. And so it's it's sad on, on a lot of levels that we can't use it more and it can't be covered more by insurance really for the work that we know and that I see all the time that it's doing. Wonderful. I should have went to well the drug world, but I, I should have went into the, ah. the pharmacy. You know, I would have made more money, but it's okay. I'd rather I'd rather help people in a more holistic way. I mean, certainly I use drugs when they're needed, but the paradigm is just unfortunately so focused on pharmaceuticals uh, because that's where the money is. That's who's sponsoring everything. That's who's sponsoring the drug trials. I mean, you know this, David. It's it's uh, yeah. it's the swamp, just not the political swamp. Uh, I it's mean, the drug I, swamp. You know, I. I don't want to slam those guys because um, the, the truth is most of us are alive today because pharmaceuticals exist. <laughs> like, right. You know, I'm, I have no interest in going back to the 1300s. Um, sure. I, I like drugs. They were great. <laughs> when needed, right? But then it should always needed, be the first right. option, right? And that's the thing. Right. It's, it's unfortunately the medical paradigm is drugs first, ask questions later kind of thing, mm. as opposed to this whole pandemic was a great opportunity to ask why aren't why are people so unhealthy? Why are people so obese? Why why are people so susceptible, especially in this country, compared to almost every other country, to severe disease from this particular infection? Mm. And that's because of obesity. Number one through five is obesity, 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 obesity. You know, so to give all five. So it's I mean it's it, it would have been nice, and it, it has happened, but it's it's been harder to get into sort of the mainstream is is to have a conversation about health and optimizing. So. If someone wants to get in touch with you, either um, to consult um, or as a, in a, in a doctor-patient relationship, how do they contact you? So I have a about five or six years ago, I set up a, a website. Now it goes through my own name. It's drscottsher.com, S-C-O-T-T-S-H-E-R-R. The name of the the former consulting, and I still use it, is called Integrative HBOT. And, and that's kind of what I use for my... I speak directly to clients or patients across the world to consult, to advocate for them. I work with clinics across the world to help use hyperbaric therapy in integrative contexts, whether it be like a neurologic chiropractor or a, a recovery house that doesn't have a doctor or anything in between. Every, every, I work with a lot of clinics and it's one of my favorite things to do. So you can just go to my website and fill out the contact form and let me know what you're interested in. And, I'm, and I have a team that can help help me understand how best to help you and, and help navigate. And so I work individually with clients and then clinics as well. And then my company, HBOT Plus, is creating technology, software, and hardware to make hyperbaric therapy better, I think, and faster and safer, especially, and just more comprehensive understanding of what this technology can do. And, and also... The, our goal as a company is to not only just talk about hyperbaric therapy, but it's that integration piece that's so important mm. to me is that how are you optimizing your health in all these other ways? I mean, a lot of people have new toys and things like I know you do, David, like we talked about before we started, like how do you work all this stuff into your health regimens? And we're hoping to be able to create a platform for that using hyperbaric therapy as the anchor, but other things, other technologies and practices along the way. So uh, the best places would be uh, drscotcher.com and, and my website, hbot, uh, it's hbot.plus. So that's the website as well. Super. And if somebody wanted to buy, uh, you know, an hbot for their home, uh, mm -hmm. I know you've seen a lot of these, 
uh, are some, where should they go? So I think the easiest answer to that question is that I don't recommend any particular brand of, of chamber. It really depends on what the patient's needs are, the person's mm-hmm. needs are in the family. So I would usually recommend they, they contact me and I can direct mm-hmm. them where that would be best for them to define what they need. I, I just, I hate to send people to particular companies because the companies are hammer and nail companies in the sense that if you, if you go to one particular company that has a soft chamber, of course, they're going to tell you that their chamber is going to do what you need for what you have. And that might not be true. And I don't, I really would rather people, at least until we have our education up and, and we have more of that stuff. And I'm, I always work on that. I mean, I've done plenty of podcasts over the years where I try to delineate where people should direct their attention, depending on their indications. If it's more neurologic then the milder units, would be great. And then also if they're looking for optimization, mild units can be very, very impactful. If they're looking for more systemic issues and more, more sort of um, robust cellular response outside the cellular, uh, outside the central nervous system, and then the, the medical grade units might be better uh, depending on the indication. So that's the general uh, fork in the road, I would say, but overall there's certainly nuance. And I work with people that are like, that are doing amazingly well, like athletes, that are using the mild units and using other technologies to improve blood flow that I think probably simulates going to a deeper pressure under some circumstances. So there's nuance there. So I would direct people to me, to my companies, to my HBOT plus, um, and to talk about where we can help you kind of go. Um, I try to be as, as agnostic as I can in the sense of, I just want people to get better and have the best experience. Wonderful. You're a busy guy, Dr. Scott, and I appreciate your time today. Um, I think you answered a lot of people's questions. Um, this is, I'm, what, I, it, the only thing I'm thinking about is like, when am I going to have time to do like 60 sessions? Oh sure. Oh my gosh. Well, the, <laughs> so and that's a really much. good point is that the more optimized you are and the more integrations that you create, the less that I think so far, and I don't have other than anecdotal data here, the less I think you need to see that shift. So the Israelis, they did 60 sessions. They didn't change anybody's diet. They didn't change anybody's lifestyle. They didn't change anybody's sleep. They didn't do any of that stuff. They didn't optimize cellular function. And they still saw all these benefits, 60 treatments. Mm. But is that the sort of, is that the huge hammer, right? Is that just, we're going to bludgeon people with hyperbaric therapy because we know that this is going to help everybody if they do 60 sessions. My field, is that if you're pretty well optimized, you can get away with much less than that, 50% less probably, and see the benefits as much or even more if you're pretty well optimized and using integrations. Uh, And then also you don't always have to use the chambers for six weeks in a row. You can use it for one or two sessions here and there, three or four or five or six, depending on the indication, to just accelerate the processes, the goals that you already have. If you have like they did a study, for example, David, in China, where they just did five hyperbaric sessions, five days in a row, and then they had them take their exams, and they did MRI tests, MRIs looking at the blood flow of the brain. They had increased visual spatial recognition, increased memory retrieval, improved executive functioning. That's just after five sessions. So you don't, you know, that doesn't last forever, but if you needed like a little bump like that, you can do that in a short couple treatments in the chamber and see a significant benefit. So it doesn't always have to be these long-term protocols to see the benefit, but the longer you do, the more the long-standing likely the benefits will be to a point. Like I was mentioning, I think you can get long-standing with less 
if you are pretty well optimized before you even get into the chamber. My guess is um, by you just saying that, um, there's some people, I generally my people are a little older, but I know there's some younger people that listen and people that are looking um, you know, to pass their medical license exams. I can see them. Give me those five sessions. Right. <laughs> just my bang it out before the, yeah, bang it out before your test. I mean, we've had plenty of people, I've had plenty of people over the years do it in that capacity as well. Just a burst of four or five, 10 sessions. Um, and for everything, everything from cognitive function, just to heal up faster from their nose job or whatever, even mm-hmm. though it's superficial, you don't want to be walking around with raccoon eyes for two weeks. You could do it in a week, right? Or if you're an elite athlete, you want to get back on the field in half the time, that's a big deal. Or if you're you know, older and playing pickleball, you want to get back on the field after your, you know, after your muscle strain or something like it can help, you know, I guess pickleball is like the big sport now for people that are on the older side. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, it's huge. It's a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So anyway, I think there's a lot of ways to use this technology, but always in context, David, always in the context of how are you optimizing your health already? Because if you're just using it in a silo on its own, it's not going to be as beneficial as if you did it in a more of a integrative holistic way. That's my game. Mm. Yeah. It's not the blue pill or the red pill. You got to do the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I have a couple of those, but not enough for this. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, we'll talk about that in the next session. That's the next podcast. Dr. Dr. Scott, it's, it's been great to have you on here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, David. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Thanks for joining us on the show today. It was great to have Dr. Scott with us. And hey, a big thanks to our sponsor, Inside Tracker. Again, insidetracker.com slash ageist. Save 20% on all their products. Um, you know, I'm going to hopefully be able to uh, dabble with some of this HBOT uh, in the next couple of weeks. And I will keep you informed on that. And I'll keep you informed on how it's going with my continuous glucose monitor and my interesting new diet, which I have to say is rigorous. <laughs> I hope it's worth it. We'll find out. Um, next week, we've got um, we got a fascinating one. I feel like we're, we're dealing with a lot of stuff on the edge of science, um, but it's all stuff that you guys are sending me that you want to know about. Um, and I'm so grateful for that because a lot of this um, is not really on my radar. And next week, um, it's going to be about ketamine, um, and which seems like another rather incredible treatment for a lot of different things. So we're going to dive into that. Everyone, have a wonderful week. Hey, if you can, if you like the show today, leave us a rating. We love that. Leave us a comment, even better. If you want to get in touch with me directly, it is david at superage.com. Everybody, have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week. 